Last week was a blessed time. I praise God for the rest we had. I also praise God for the opportunity that I had to declare plainly, you know how I do, I tell you plain, the gospel and things associated with missions and the Great Commission to uh, not only to the day camp that Josiah was a part of, but also to the children's church camp they had last week. I think there was four churches represented from different places around the state. So you never know how it's going to go down when you speak blunt, uh, when you say things with chutzpah and authority, things maybe that some of these kids don't hear in their churches some of these things, some things that maybe the counselors have never heard. You kind of wonder how that'll go. And I'll admit, I didn't go there to preach to the kids. I went there to preach to the counselors and to the adults. That was what God laid on my heart to do. And I was just immensely encouraged. You just never know. All the stuff going on in America today makes people hungry for some truth. And so I was just really encouraged. I kind of wondered if, you know, people were hoping I'd never come back. And then you had some counselors approach you and tell you how much they appreciated what you had to say. You had kids. The last thing one of those little girls said to me before she got on the bus, hey, Mr. Missionary, thanks for preaching to us this week. And that just melted my heart. I was very encouraged to hear even just the way the camp is run these days. It looks a lot different. Then when I was a camper there, and when I was a counselor, it's a little more laid back. It's had to adjust to just the lack of uh, interest uh, with young people today. But I was really encouraged just to hear the gospel declared, uh, not just through the things I shared, but through uh, the, the, the pastors that spoke, through the director that spoke every night. Every time the gospel was clearly laid out there. When I went to camp at Camp Caraway, we learned about the things of God, and we heard from missionaries, and we did Bible devotions and things like that. But it was almost like the gospel, you know, that was Friday night. You went to the closing service, and the gospel was preached. Well, this week, it was spoken. I mean, those kids heard the gospel at least three times in a day. Um, and I just was encouraged by that. I'm not talking about some mealy mouth, repeat a prayer after me, but that Jesus Christ was crucified, he was buried, and he rose from the dead on the third day. We need to repent and be made right with him. I heard the word repent. So I was just immensely encouraged, immensely encouraged. And it was a, it was a break for me, for the family. Josiah had a great time, made some new friends. And uh, I'm excited to get back to doing what God uh, has called us to do on the highways and byways of America. I did get an opportunity last night um, to watch and listen to uh, President Trump speak in Ohio at a rally. I got some, a few laughs. It had me laughing a little bit. It's nice to hear evil people called what they are. Um, he spoke with the Supreme Court, being ashamed of the Supreme Court. I, I thought he didn't go far enough. They're Satan's children. All night, you know... Eight of them at least, seven maybe, maybe not, maybe not more than seven, but they're Satan's children up there, even those ones Trump put on the court. They're puppets of Antichrist. Our government's wicked as hell. And it was nice to hear that declared, but I was reminded of something that I preached or God laid on my heart long before Trump was elected. This was back in not long, you know, just six months after Obama was inaugurated for his second term. We were in the messages to the seven churches, 
And I've been going back and listening to some of that. In the last message uh, that I preached from Jesus' message to the church at Thyatira, um, I shared about how what Christ is calling us to do when we're surrounded by evil, when we're surrounded by wickedness and iniquity, just like the remnant at Thyatira, the unrepentant church, Jesus calls us to hold fast. He doesn't call us to political revolution. He doesn't call us to campaigning and electioneering. He doesn't call us to getting involved in these man-made attempts to fit spiritual problems. He calls us, the remnant church, to hold fast what we have until he comes. So just kind of watching that last night, I was reminded of, reminded of these things. We can't make the mistake of putting our energy and our hope in the coming months, in the coming years, back into a political solution for a spiritual problem. Because there is no political solution for a spiritual problem. We need to hold fast. We are surrounded by these things that are listed here in Revelation 21.8. We live amongst them just like Lot living in Sodom. They ought to vex our spirit. We need to hold fast. That verb there in the message to the church at Thyatira is strong. It's like you would hold on to your child if a tornado ripped through your house. You'd hold on with every ounce of strength so your child wouldn't be blown from your arms. That's what Christ commands us to do. Hold fast. And guess what, guys? You can't hold fast virtually, and you can't hold fast without accountability. That means we have to gather. We have to go out and preach. We have to pray one for another. We have to hold each other accountable and exhort each other. It doesn't matter what Caesar says. It doesn't matter what that fool in Raleigh, I won't even say his name, a diabolical evil from the abyss of hell. It doesn't matter what he says. Really doesn't matter what Donald Trump says either. We need to hold fast. So let's don't make the mistake. I kind of got caught up watching that last night. And it, was, it was funny. There were some good things that were said. I'm glad to hear it said that that election was stolen because we all know it was. You've got to be pretty stupid to think that was a fair election or to think that your vote still matters. We all know it. And it's refreshing to hear it. But man, we got to be careful not to get caught up in all that. You can't fix this country with an election or a campaign or a rally or bad mouth from Democrats and liberals and fake conservatives. You can't fix it because we have a spiritual problem. We've got to hold fast. And that was the message Jesus gave to a church in the midst of a remnant in the midst of apostasy, and that's exactly what we are. So let's hold fast. And we hold fast when we gather together to worship the Lord and to hear from his word. Hold fast till I come. That's our duty. And sometimes with the Lord, you know, in these days, that's all we can handle. He's not going to give us any more responsibility. We can't handle it. We've got to hold fast. We're in Revelation 21.8. I'm moving slowly. 
Jesus, or, or the one sitting upon the throne, God all in all, gives an invitation here. Before he goes into detail, before the book goes into detail about our future heavenly home, God's res- residence with us, there's an invitation given. Whoever is thirsty, come and drink of the water of life freely. We talked about freely, a stumbling block for many. He that overcomes will inherit all things. He is an heir of God. We were slaves to sin, and by faith in Jesus Christ, we become sons of God, and as sons, we are heirs of God. I was encouraged to hear that preached this week. Heirs of God. We will inherit all things because we serve a king. Jesus is king. He's king. An invitation. But that invitation doesn't go without warning. Here we have the offer of the gospel or the command of the God. I don't even like to say the gospel is an offer of God. I don't like to say that. God's not a beggar. He's an almighty king that rules over his creation. And because of what Jesus has done, God is not offering you salvation. He's commanding that you repent and believe upon Jesus Christ that you might have eternal life. That is God's command. And to reject it is disobedience. It's unbelief. It's a horrendous, wicked sin. God commands us to repent. But the gospel in the Bible is not given without warning. And here we have the last Hellfire and brimstone warning in all of Scripture. This is the last. There's another warning at the end of 22 with regard to messing around with God's book, the Bible, and it appropriately appears at the end of Revelation. So I'm not going to say it's the last warning. It's the last warning. The last hellfire brimstone warning in the Scriptures. And so I think we ought to give it some attention. In fact, all of these things mentioned here, all of these types of people, we dwell amongst them. We live amongst them. They're everywhere. We're surrounded by them. What's listed here, they are Democrats. They are Republicans. They are liberals. They are conservatives. They got all these different names, but these things characterize America. This is America and its culture right here. We've got to go into some detail because it's so prevalent today. We need to recognize these things so we don't get caught up in it. So our faith isn't weakened and we cower in fear before these. When I read and I think about the fearful or the cowards, the unbelieving the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. I think about how these such appear in the Scriptures. Countless examples. And I think about a a Hebrew phrase that's very common. Every Israeli I talk to knows this phrase. It's a cliche of sorts, but it's right out of the Bible. Ein chadash tehat hashemesh. There is nothing new under the sun. These things have been here from the fall of man and they're here today. 
God's salvation has never changed. These things and these people will not inherit His kingdom. Just like those like this didn't inherit the land of Israel. But there's deliverance from these things. Christians may be guilty of some of these things, but they aren't connected to it. A Christian, a born-again Christian, may tell a lie, but he's not a liar. An unsaved man is a liar, and a liar won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a few in here. There's no such thing as a Christian that's abominable. No such thing. But I want to go into detail. We talked about the first in line last week. We talked about the cowards. We looked at some examples in Scripture. I left you with some good news. It's possible to be guilty of cowardice and yet be redeemed unto great boldness. We saw this in the life of the apostles, in John Mark, in Peter, who became the bold leader of the early church. That's good news for us post-COVID if there is such. I don't think there is post-COVID. It's always something COVID. COVID this, COVID that. I'm sick of it, frankly. I was encouraged last week at Camp Carraway. I didn't see any masks. No, not on the kids and on the counselors. I think maybe a couple of times there was somebody in the cafeteria working and serving food. I might have seen one or two, but none of that stuff. You know, it was just a good time of fellowship and teaching and preaching and fun like it used to be. I praise God for that. I praise God for that. But there's great opportunity for believers who perhaps struggled with some cowardice during COVID during round one, to wake up and be staunch defenders of the faith for round two. Because that's what we see in the book of Acts. That's good news. Today, I want to look at the next indictment. We talked about the fearful. Let's talk a bit about the unbelieving. The word there in Greek literally means without belief. Just not believing. Unbelieving. You just don't believe God. It's very sobering, just as it is with cowardice, to see here that God classifies unbelief with whoremongers, murderers, and idolaters. When you hear the gospel... Time and time again, like everyone in this church has, every one of you young people, every one of you kids, and you sit in here Sunday after Sunday, and you know the truth, and you refuse to believe. You refuse to confess with your mouth. You refuse because you're afraid to confess it before men. That's unbelief. And God classifies unbelief with whoremongers, idolaters, murderers. You know, there's a lot of youth in America who've heard the gospel time and time again, and yet they continue to come to church, play the games, and live their lives in unbelief. That's wickedness beyond imagination. And it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for Americans who have heard the gospel and have not believed. For if the preaching that had been done here... Or even in America, as wicked as it is today, because I know it's preached on the streets, I've heard it and seen it, I've been a part of it, had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. Unbelief. God classifies it with whoremongering, murdering, idolatry. It's the seed of cowardice. 
Cowardice springs from unbelief. Why were so many people scared to death who called themselves Christians during the COVID hysteria? Because of their unbelief. Now, yeah, Christians struggled. That happens. Christians can struggle with unbelief. We saw it. There's an example there Matthew mentioned this morning. Funny, I was going to use that scripture. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. But to continue in unbelief is just like Israel in the desert when the spies brought back their report. It's the seed of cowardice. If you're afraid, you might need to ask whether your problem is unbelief because that's the seed. And it's also a host or a a seed of a host of other sins. Titus 1.15 speaks of the unbelieving as defiled unto the Unto the uh, unbelieving and defiled, nothing is pure. For even their mind and conscience is defiled. The unbelieving that are being talked about here are those who have a mind and a conscience that is defiled. Those have no place but in the lake of fire for all eternity. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 13. And I want everybody to stand up. While we read, get yourself a little stretch, a little extra oxygen in those limbs. Let's look at numbers. We're going to look at the pinnacle of unbelief for those who should have known better in the Old Testament. Here's an example of unbelieving people who knew God, who saw the Lord, who saw His deliverance, and yet did not believe. You could put it this way. There's a type of the American, the average American Christian in the Old Testament. We're going to look at Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. This is at Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness of Paran, on the edge of the desert. I've been there. There's a water tower on the top of the hill at Kadesh Barnea. I left a track there. I wanted to see where this happened the last time I was in Israel. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, And surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it, is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants 
the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in their own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. All right, you guys can sit down. Guys, this is unbelief. This is the unbelieving that is meant or spoken of in Revelation 21.8. This is an example. Its seed was fear. These were a people that God had brought out of Egypt with great signs and wonders. God had fought for them while they stood still at the shore of the Red Sea. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, which the Egyptians of saying to do were drowned. God appeared to them on Mount Sinai. It says the elders of Israel went up with Moses and Aaron and Joshua, and they ate, and they saw the God of Israel. His feet were like a sapphire, were like on sapphire stone. And they ate and drank before the Lord. Moses saw his backside. Moses brought down his law. God provided them water in the desert when they were thirsty. Meat when they were hungry. Manna from heaven. God had time and time again cared for them. Shown himself real. Signs and wonders. And yet, when they came to the land, they did not believe. After what God had done to Egypt, the superpower of the day, how is it that these people were afraid of a loose confederation of tribes in Canaan, no matter how tall they were? How is it? Because of their unbelief. When we go on into chapter 14, this is what God says. You know, God's patient. Moses... Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, they interpose between the people of God, the people and God. Please don't rebel against the Lord. He's brought us this far. He will do what He says He's going to do. Please don't do this evil. Even Joshua and Caleb knew this unbelief was wicked as hell. They knew it. And they interposed for the people. Please don't rebel. And then we get to verse 10 of chapter 14 and it says, But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. The people were so fearful and unbelieving that they picked up stones to stone Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron. And that's when God stepped in. God wasn't going to let His servants be stoned by this unbelieving, wicked crowd. God stepped in. This is what He said in verse uh, 11 of chapter 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke Me? And how long will it be ere they believe Me? For all the signs which I have shown among them. In other words, how long are these people going to keep provoking me? What do I have to do for them to actually believe me? Not to believe in me, but to believe me. Even the devils believe in God, but do you believe God? Because the people of Israel did not, despite all of God's wonders and signs and watch care and protection, they still didn't believe me. This is wickedness beyond imagination. And this is exactly what affects our country and our culture and our churches today. Wickedness beyond imagination. You may as well spit in the face of God. Israel may as well spit in His face. Verse 28 of chapter 14. 
It's interesting. Israel said, why didn't God just kill? We're going to die in this wilderness. Why didn't God just leave us in Egypt? He's brought us up here to kill us in the wilderness. We can't go into the land. There's giants there, the sons of Anak. Better be careful what you say. A lot of people learn that the hard way. Some of them are in the grave. Said similar things about COVID-19. They're in the grave right now. Be careful because right here Israel spoke its own judgment. God didn't render his own sentence against them. They spoke their own judgment. Chapter 14, verse 28, God said, Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in mine ears, I will do unto you. You're going to die in the wilderness. You said it, not me. That's what God says. You said it, not me. Your carcasses will fall in this wilderness. And every one of that generation, 20 years old and upward, died before Israel could go in that land. They wandered around for 40 years till every last one of them was dead. Just as they had spoken, God did. We need to be careful about speaking our own judgment. We speak our own judgment when we persist in our unbelief. This nation has spoken its own judgment against itself. And that's why we're in the mess we're in. Guys, this, these stories are nothing new. I was listening to an old song from 1971 in the car yesterday. It's the same old wine in new bottles. That's all it is. That same unbelief is in this country today. And we saw that same spirit in the churches during all this COVID and BLM and all this nonsense. We saw it. God warns us about this unbelief. He talks about what Israel did there in the desert. They didn't just have struggle with believing God. They provoked God at Kadesh Barnea. Let's look at Hebrews 3 for a moment. This is a great warning for us as we consider the second in line for the lake of fire. Just behind the cowards are the unbelieving. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Stand up again. Gigi, you can stay sit down if you want to. Hebrews 3. Stand up again, guys. Come on now. We need to get some blood flowing. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. I'm going to ask Eric at the back of the room to use a loud voice, use his outside voice, and read this for us. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil part of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, 
whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcass fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Guys, we see here that in unbelief proceeds from a hardened heart. The heart of the people at Kadesh Barnea was hardened just like Pharaoh when God poured out His plagues. This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. And he calls it not the day of the spies, but the day of provocation. This was the day that Israel, because of their unbelief, provoked God. And we are warned, don't harden our hearts like Israel in the day of provocation. The Bible speaks of an evil heart of unbelief. An evil heart of unbelief. May it not be so. May it not even be found in this body of believers. You know how we can protect each other from that. We've got to do what's so unpopular today. What so many people are afraid to do for fear of might offending someone. We exhort one another daily. So that we don't fall into this. We also, it says later in chapter 13, suffer the word of exhortation. Not only should we exhort each other, exhort is not encourage, like Dr. Spock. It's not that kind. It's be straight up, be plain. Hold each other accountable and also be willing to suffer that from your brother and your sister herein. That's how we protect ourselves from unbelief. But unbelief is the product of a hardened heart and unbelief provokes God. It provokes Him. It's our unbelief in America. A land that was settled by men who feared God. A land that was uh, uh, colonized by those seeking freedom to preach and believe and worship God. A land where the Word of God went out from sea to signing sea. A place where the Gospel still resides and can be found. Where you can get a Bible at a dollar store. Homes that have multiple Bibles on shelves collecting dust. Churches on every street corner. And yet, a nation of unbelief. Such unbelief that we as Christians think that the only thing we can do every four years is temporarily forget that they're all a bunch of liars. And maybe if we'll just go vote and we get the right man in there, he'll change it all. God forbid we just forget about all that nonsense and go to fasting and prayer for God to raise up a righteous man. God forbid we think about that. That's got more power, but we're people of unbelief in this country. It's our unbelieving state in this country that makes us damnable and deserving of judgment, just like Israel in the desert. We knew the truth. We've known the truth. The truth was sown here by our fathers and we've rejected it. We've turned our back instead of our face. Unbelief. Here's an, there's an interesting epilogue, I would say, to the unbelief, the day of provocation at Kadesh Barnea in the desert. You know, the people were afraid. The spies were afraid. And so they came back here and they 
So the fear porn, the fear pornography amongst the people, the fear mongering, just like happened here with COVID-19, just like continues to happen, they sowed the fear porn and the people brought in, bought into it quickly and became addicted and they wanted to stone righteous men. Oh, the sons of Anak are there. The giants are there. There's no way we can take this land. The sons of Anak are there. Scared to death. Well, their carcasses fall in the wilderness. Deuteronomy, the next generation, is ready to enter the land. Moses reminds them of this day, warns them about it. Moses dies. God buries him. We don't know where. Joshua leads the people into the land. And then in the book of Joshua, we see how Israel, by God's hand, conquers the land. They conquer the central part, the southern part, and the northern part. Jericho falls. I falls after sin in the camp is dealt with. Hotsor falls. And as the book of Joshua details these military campaigns, we get a little side note. Oh, by the way, now this doesn't mean much unless you think about what we just read from Numbers, but in Joshua chapter 11, after going through all the details of the conquering of the land, all the campaigns, it says... In verse 21, and at that time, in other words, by the way, this is after a detailed description of the conquering of the land. And at that time came Joshua, one of the faithful spies, and cut off the Anakims from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua destroyed them utterly with their city. Oh, by the way, Joshua went in and destroyed the Anakims. Destroyed them all. So what they were so afraid of 40 years earlier was no big deal. No big deal. In fact, when we go over to chapter 14 and we see that Caleb, who is still alive, is reminding Joshua that God promised him Hebron as an inheritance, the place where that sons of Anak dwelt, Caleb reminds Joshua and says, let me have my inheritance. And then we're told that Joshua blessed Caleb and gave him Hebron for an inheritance. Verse 14 of chapter 14, And Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Caleb believed God's word, and God gave him the property of the people that the spies were so deathly afraid of. And the name of Hebron before, you can't appreciate this unless you've been to Israel. And people don't go to this place very often because it's not exactly safe. And the name of Hebron before was Kiriath Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakims. Arba was one of the chief of the people Israel was so afraid of. And the land had rest from war. If you go to Israel today, the city of Hebron, which is where David reigned for seven years before he came to Jerusalem, which was Israel conquered, that used to belong to the sons of Anak. And today, 
Hebron proper is considered area A, so it is given to the Palestinians, and Israelis are not supposed to go in there. There's a little sliver you can go down where there's the tomb of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there's a Jewish settlement right there. It's part of Hebron, but it's not in the, down, it's not in the city proper. But the Jewish settlement in Hebron, it's gated and fenced, and you have to drive through it to get over to where you can visit the tomb of Abraham. Uh, there's a gas station there, you know, you can stop at and get a coffee. But it's in a, it's surrounded by a bunch of angry Arabs who'd like to kill every Jew that lives in that settlement. But that settlement to this day is called Kiryath Arba. The Jewish settlement where the Jews live there at Hebron is Kiryath Arba. To this day. There's testimony that what Israel in the desert feared was ridiculous. It was no big deal. God took care of it, and that testimony is there to this day. Unbelief. Unbelief. When there's no reason to fear. There's some interesting kernels of unbelief elsewhere in Scripture, we're told in Matthew 13 that there's a reason why Jesus didn't do many miracles or many mighty works in Nazareth, His hometown. He laid hands on a few sick and healed them, but He didn't do... He didn't base in Nazareth. He went to Capernaum. He didn't do miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Their unbelief. In fact, it says in Mark 6 that Jesus himself actually marveled at their unbelief. He couldn't believe their unbelief. They knew him. And they didn't believe. He marveled at their unbelief. Because of Israel's unbelief in the Messiah, the Gentiles have been grafted in to the promise of God. Hallelujah. Because of their unbelief, we have been grafted in to God's plan and purpose. That's Romans 11. But be careful before you get prideful or boast or condescend toward the Jew because because of the Laodicean church's unbelief, which we see today, Israel will awaken as a nation and be grafted back in to the tree from which they were cut out. Israel started the Great Commission. The Israeli remnant, those witnesses from Israel, not the church, will finish it. When the Bible says that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world and then the end will come, that's not us. That's not the Laodicean church. That's the 144,000 witnesses of Revelation 7. They're the ones who get to see the last great revival because of our unbelief. Be not high-minded. Unbelief is the essence of the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. A lot of people have a lot of ideas of what the unpardonable sin is that Jesus talked about. But if you pay attention and you look at the reference to it in Mark... We're told exactly what the unforgivable sin is. Turn to Mark chapter 3. Now, the other Gospels make mention of this, but it's Mark 
that actually defines it for us. But because people just cherry pick verses, they often miss these things. Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, this is what's written in the other synoptic gospels. All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. There is no forgiveness for blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. What is that? Well, verse 30 tells us. Why did Jesus say these things? Because they said He hath an unclean spirit. They refused to believe the witness of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they didn't just not believe it. They assigned the witness of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Christ as the work of a devil. That's the unforgivable sin. To blaspheme the witness of God. To refuse to believe it. And to assign it as a work of evil is unforgivable. And if you die in that state, you'll never be forgiven. You'll burn in hell for all eternity. That's the essence. Unbelief. To refuse to believe God's testimony about Jesus that has been proven time and time again with signs and wonders that was demonstrated when Jesus rose from the grave seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses and to do what the virtue signaling fools in America today do to call it evil. They call good evil. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. And there's no forgiveness for that. You better not die in that blasphemy. You better cry out and repent to God. Unbelief is the essence of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The most rotten and the most rancid fruit of unbelief is described in Titus chapter 1 verse 16. Now I read you verse 15 earlier about how unbelief proceeds from a defiled mind and conscience. But what does it look like? I'd say this is the most rotten and the most rancid fruit of unbelief. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable. The exact same word that comes next in Revelation 21 And disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. The rancid fruit of unbelief. Even worse than an unbeliever who says, I don't believe any of this stuff, is the one that confesses to believe it, but lives as if they don't. Just like Israel. Israel's foolishness was long before Kadesh Barnea. Their foolishness started at Mount Sinai. And this is why God gave them the Sinaitic covenant. Israel voluntarily said, Hey, Moses, you tell the Lord, all that He commands us, we will do it. Everything God says, we'll do it. Foolish. God said, okay, I'll give you a law. We'll see about that. And what did Moses find when he came down from the mountain? They were already bowing down to a golden calf. And it wasn't just some singing and dancing. There was some filth going on. 
some sexual sin, a a great big orgy. That's what was going on. Wickedness from people who just sat there and boasted about everything God says we will do. But you know what? God's held them to it. That's why Israel will be involved in temple work. There'll be sacrifices. There'll be the Levitical priest. There'll be laws and festivals in the millennium. Israel's community service. They told God they were going to do it. They never have. God's going to hold them to it. But it's rancid to say, I believe God, like Israel did, and then to live as if they don't. You're better off just saying, no, I don't believe in God. I don't believe God at all. Then you're at least consistent. But it's those who say they believe God, and yet they're scared to death. No fear of God. I believe God, but I don't fear Him. He holds the firmament and the heavens and all the heavenly bodies and the galaxies in His hand, and I don't fear Him, but I'm going to fear BLM or Democrats or a virus with a 99.7% survival rate. That's rancid and rotten fruit of a lukewarm church, in my opinion. I know that's hard preaching. And I know that you folks in here aren't like that. I have great freedom to preach here because I know this is not what you are. But guys, these things should be a warning to us. God warns us because He's merciful. And these warnings are what keep us from falling into these things. Beware unbelief. Because the unbelieving in God's eyes are classified with whoremongers and liars and idolaters and sorcerers. A believer can be guilty of unbelief, but he is not an unbeliever. A believer can be guilty of unbelief. He can struggle with unbelief, but he's not unbelieving. How do I know this? I, can, I know it because it's right here in the Scriptures. Chapter, Mark, chapter 9, Matthew mentioned it this morning. I found it, found it appropriate because I'd already determined to mention this. Mark chapter 9 You have the father who has the demon-possessed son. He has the dumb spirit. And that demon would throw him in the fire and cause him to foam at the mouth and all these things. And Jesus' disciples were in a big argument with the Pharisees about how to cast him out. None of them could do anything. And the father was just in a strait of belief and unbelief. And Jesus came on the scene. And it says in... He explains to Jesus what's going on and the man says, Have compassion on me, Lord. If you can do something, please do it. Verse 23, Jesus said unto him, If thou can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Here we had a believer struggling with unbelief. And what was the cure? What was the fix? Very simple. Lord, help me. Help my unbelief. Cry out to God. That's the problem with Israel today. It's the problem with the American church. We got a lot of people that believe in God. They have a favorable view of God. Many of them would agree with a lot of things that are spoken or tell you they agree with it. Some of them go to church a lot. Some of them went to church every Sunday until Governor Cooper said they couldn't and they stayed home. 
But we've got a lot of that. But so few feel the need to call on God. There's a difference between believing in God, believing about God, and being willing to cry out to Him for help. Very few cried out to Him for help. In fact, a lot of folks spoke their own judgment. I'm convinced that there are pastors of American churches who are dead today in the grave, who died of COVID because they spoke their own judgment and they spoke judgment for their church. They ran and hid. They were scared to death. Some of them dropped out of the pastorate. Some of them closed their churches down when the people didn't want to. And they were healthy and young and they died of COVID. Not because COVID kills healthy young people and it's a great danger and we need to stay home, but because they spoke their own judgment. It happens. It happens. I spoke my own judgment about someone I labored with in ministry long ago and it came to pass. I should have kept my mouth shut. Bishnu warned me about it. Be careful not to speak your own judgment. But the cure for our unbelief is simple. Lord, help me. Help my unbelief, Lord. If you're willing to ask God to help your unbelief, then you're not unbelieving. Because you believe God can help you. It says there in Timothy, it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Oh, man, I <laughs> this book memorized and I can't even draw it to my mind today. I sat there and recited the whole book for Josiah when we were uh, walking the other day. And uh, now I can't bring it to mind. I need to jumpstart my memory here. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, this is written to believers, written to Timothy. If we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer... We shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful, He cannot deny Himself. In other words, if we believe not, Christ who lives in us is faithful. He cannot deny Himself. And all we got to do is ask Him for help. That's all we got to do. If you struggle with unbelief, cry out to the Lord to help you. And if you cry out to Him, then you're not unbelieving like the unbelieving that go into the lake of fire. Sometimes unbelief is actually rooted in ignorance. You know, Paul did some things. Paul was very jealous and zealous for the Lord his whole life. And he said everything he did, he did in good conscience. But he says over there, he, he, he writes over there in 1 Timothy in the first epistle that he talks about how God had counted him faithful and put him in the ministry, who was before a blasphemer. He blasphemed Christ. He was a persecutor of Christians, and he was injurious. He caused a lot of harm to a lot of people. But he obtained mercy, he said, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. His unbelief was rooted in ignorance. And when he was confronted with the truth, he didn't continue in unbelief. Like Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. When Paul was confronted by Jesus himself, he, he didn't continue in unbelief because his unbelief was rooted in ignorance. When he knew the truth, he believed. He believed. The deliverance from unbelief that's rooted in ignorance is simple surrender. That's all Paul did on the road to Damascus was surrender. 
It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. He quit kicking against the pricks. If you know what you need to do to be right with God and to be saved, then you need to be surrender. You just need to surrender. You need to stop kicking against the pricks because you're afraid. Oh, I might have to say, talk. I might have to tell. Stand up in front of the church and tell them. You think God's gonna? What do you think God thinks about that? He was willing to send His Son to die on the cross and to be hung in shame before the whole world. And you're afraid to stand up in a church and tell people that love you that God saved you. That's wicked. You need to get right with God. You need to surrender like Paul did on the road to Damascus. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. The deliverance is in the surrender. What's the preventative maintenance in the church? Struggling with unbelief, cry out to the Lord in belief. Belief rooted in ignorance, surrender to the truth. Quick cure. Then the preventative maintenance. Just like we do maintenance on our cars to prevent future problems. We need to do preventative maintenance in the body of Christ to protect ourselves from the spirit of unbelief. And it's what I read there in Hebrews. Exhort one another daily. Tell each other plain. And then Hebrews 13, suffer the word of exhortation. Let others tell you plain. It's very simple. Some of us struggled with what to believe or what to think through the COVID thing. We didn't know. And we exhorted one another. And we suffered the word of exhortation and we came through it faithfully. And unbelief did not take root in this church like it did in many others. And I praise God for that. There's simple preventative maintenance and it's accountability. It's Christian fellowship. Things that you can't have virtually. Oh, the churches did err during COVID-19. They erred greatly. It's a sad thing. It's been heavy. I've preached heavy this morning, guys. I think I'm just going to stop here. How's that sound? Unbelief. There's two types of sin first in line for the lake of fire. And it's not what we would think. It's not what the world would think. There are people out here that are cowardly and they're unbelieving, but they would boast in their righteousness and say, I've never murdered anyone. I've been faithful to my wife. I'm not a homosexual. I don't bow down to idols. I'm righteous. I'm good. Not according to God. Cowardice and unbelief are classified with whoremongers and murderers and idolaters. In fact, they go first. They're first in line. And these things are so prevalent. We would expect this in society, but not in the church of God. But we're in Laodicea, guys. We're in lukewarm Laodicea. The church doesn't go out with a bang in the church age. It goes out with a whimper. Jesus says this to an unbelieving and a cowardly church who wants to play patty cakes with the world instead of taking a stand for righteousness. I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, I am increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thy eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. 
As many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous therefore and repent. And then here we have Christ. Not on the outside of your heart, knocking on the door of your heart. We have Christ outside his own church. He's been put out. If that isn't America today, the churches, I don't know what is. He's on the outside of a lukewarm church that doesn't want him in there. And who does he call to? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, not if the church, but if any man in the church amidst this lukewarmness will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So Christ has been put on the outside of the church, but he's knocking. And if just one man will open the door, Christ will come in to that man and give him the boldness and the strength and the belief to live righteously and be cold and hot amidst a society or a culture of lukewarmness. I encourage you to go back and listen to the messages that I preached back in 2013 to the church at Laodicea. That's where we're living today. But we need not be these things. We need not be these things. We don't have to be. In fact... 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll, I'll just wrap it up here. I'm actually like trying to find things to say because it's only 1245. <laughs> I should probably just quit. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It's like it says there in 21.8. Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters... Fornicators are called whoremongers in 21.8 of Revelation. Nor adulterers, that includes whoremongers, that's part of whoremongers. Nor effeminate, that's cowards, unbelievers. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind, that's, that's homosexuality. That's a fancy little 20th century word. You know, we make up these words that are rooted in evolution. God calls them abusers of themselves with mankind. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. These things, these people won't inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such was me. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Praise the Lord for that. Cry out to the Lord, just like Peter in the waves. Lord, save me. Just like the man with the demon-possessed son. Lord, help my unbelief. He'll wash you. He'll sanctify you, set you apart. And you'll be justified in the sight of God. No longer one of these things. See, as a Christian, you may struggle with sin. Some of these things here. But that is not your identity anymore. Your identity is Christ. You've been washed. And you have the power by the Holy Ghost not to sin. You can say no. The the unbeliever, the lost man doesn't have his power. He's connected to the sin. Those that are connected to it, that haven't been washed, haven't been sanctified, shall have their part in the lake of fire. Those who believe upon Jesus Christ and are willing to confess Him before men will have their part in the kingdom. 
All right, guys, we've talked about cowards. We've talked about unbelief. Next week, we'll look at the abominable. We'll talk about the murderers, the whoremongers. Maybe we'll get into the sorcerers. When you read this verse in the original language and you see the word translated sorcerers, my immediate reaction is, well, 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 looky what we have here. Looky what we have here. There's a lot of sorcery in America today. And some of the chief sorcerers you see on the TV every night when you look at the news. Sorcery. There's a lot of sorcery. We don't even know. We wouldn't even know it's what it is, but it is. So the original language sheds some light here. Then we've got the idolaters. And boy, all liars. The, the word used there in Greek is interesting too. Because a liar doesn't just tell lies. He, he is a liar. He's, he's a liar. His life is a lie. He's a pseudo whatever he claims to be. But guys, and I also want to talk about how, you know, as Christians, we can rest in our eternal security. We can rest in the faithfulness of God that what God has given us in Christ can't be lost. But... To live in sin, to live outside the will of God, we do. you can stand to lose. A Christian can lose a lot of things. He won't lose his soul, but there's a lot of things you can lose. Now, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to lose the joy of my salvation or my testimony or my health or some of these other things. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk some about that as well, and then uh, we'll get into a personal tour of the Lamb's wife, our future home in the New Jerusalem. So thank you guys for indulging me today. It was heavy, but it's a good place to stop. Let's pray over the meal and uh, let's exhort one another today. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Oh, how sobering and solemn it is to talk about the sin of unbelief, what Israel displayed in the desert after all the things you had done for them. And Father, we're no less guilty in our country today. And uh, so we deal with these things humbly, a spirit of humility before your throne. And Lord, like that father whose son was tormented by that devil, that dumb spirit, Lord. We, we cry out to you, Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Thank you that there's redemption in Christ for unbelief. That there's a simple cure. That there's preventative maintenance that we can help one another. Maybe be faithful in these things in our church to exhort each other, to suffer the word of exhortation. And Lord, in an unbelieving culture, in an unbelieving nation, may we be willing to go out and declare these things without apology, without fear, Lord, that men might be saved and that men might, who are unbelievers and cowards might be believers who are bold and staunch defenders of the faith. That's the marvelous work of your Holy Spirit, Lord. And we praise you for that. Be with those who are not amongst us. Bring them back safely. Those that are sick, we pray through this for this morning. We lift them up to you. We pray for the meal that you would strengthen it, nourish and sanctify it for our nourishment today. And we just thank you for this body of believers, how we've sustained each other during these dark days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.